Coming to you live from Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's Cognitive Dissidents. I'm Jacob Shapiro. Joining me in person is Rob Larity. Say hello to the guests, Rob. Hello, guests. Um, this was the first podcast we tried to record on Cognitive Dissidents channel, and it was too hard for us. <laughs> uh, I guess we needed to be looking at each other in person. Um, it's actually weird to look at you in person while we're, while we're recording right now. I'll have to get used to that. Um, but so the reason we're here is we wanted to talk about geopolitics and investing. And the reason we wanted to talk about that is because, as, as some of you know, I had my own firm, Perch Perspectives, and the first client for Perch Perspectives was Cognitive Investments. Um, and we've been working together uh, on sort of a client-based relationship with Perch providing um, you know, geopolitical insights to cognitive investments and cognitive investments integrating that into their investment strategies. Um, but as we kind of went along, um, and, and as the world evolved in this multipolar geopolitical competitive direction, I think it became clear to both to both me and Rob that we'd stumbled on something that nobody else was doing, which is that nobody was really thinking about the relationship between geopolitics and investing and actually creating strategies around that. So Rob asked me to join him as partner and director of geopolitical analysis at CI. And I said yes, in large part because the last two years have been so successful and so stimulating. Um, so that's why we're here. We're here to talk about geopolitics and investing and kind of what we've learned over the past two years uh, as practitioners of doing that. Um, Rob, was there anything else you wanted me to tell the audience about what we're doing together or should we dive into geopolitics? Well, I think the only thing I would add to what you've already said is in addition to finding that the combination of those two things really works, I think there's a recognition that for our clients, the next 20 years are going to be dominated by geopolitics. And our approach at Cognitive is to build um, investment programs for our clients that are supposed to you know, uh, last the test of time. And without having that built into the underlying foundation of everything that we do, we quickly realized that it was fruitless to try to do that. If you look around and see what's happening in the world, how decisions made in Eurasia are impacting markets in the United States, how, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings in China and, you know, tariffs go up in uh, on the Canadian border and, you know, affects lumber prices. So having a handle on those things is table stakes now. And that's why we really are so excited to start this new chapter of really having everything integrated into one whole. One whole, yeah. I, I, um, it's funny, I've worked at a few geopolitical firms in my life, uh, Stratfor and Geopolitical Futures and then Perch. And um, the investment geopolitics thing was always the holy grail. I feel like everybody was always trying to pursue it. And I think one of the ways that we're actually very different than than other folks out there that are trying to use geopolitics is that you don't ask me to give you the investment thesis. Like I see a lot of times where people think that geopolitics is gonna translate directly into an investment thesis. And that's not actually how it works because geopolitics isn't designed to understand investing. It doesn't actually care about finance or returns. It cares about power. So the geopolitics expert understands what's happening politically and you sort of need to work with somebody who understands investments, which is you in this case, to translate that into actual strategies. And I think that's another way that we're different because I think you see a lot of people out there who try to do both at the same time. Um, and I mean, I think I'm a pretty smart dude. I can't do that. It's too many different things to keep track of at once. So it really is a partnership in the sense that 
the sum is greater than than its parts because by itself i think investing it can't understand geopolitics and geopolitics can't really understand investing they're two very different kind of disciplines but when you put them together and make them talk to each other like we are across the table now um, it does seem to yield pretty interesting insights and and unique opportunities yeah think of it like insurance right so that's the way we think about every investment that we make for our clients is we're underwriting risks. So what is the potential upside risk on this investment and what's the potential downside risk? And if you're going to be doing that, you need to understand all of the underlying factors that go into that. So you have this probability tree of potential outcomes. And if you're underwriting you know, auto insurance, geopolitics is equivalent to knowing that this person is a bad driver. It's, it's a fundamental input. It's not that you're going to take that and that's the investment thesis. It's without that grounding, you're flying blind, if that makes sense. Yeah, one, one of my favorite stories to tell has been when we were still early on in our partnership and um, I was trying to impress you, I did this whole long study on Turkey and I, I said at the end of it, oh, I, you know, Turkey's economy is really bad and you should probably think about shorting the lira and all these other impressive sounding investment terms that I hadn't really used before. I remember you came back to me and you said, hey, every part of this was great except for those last two sentences where you told me what to do. I think you've actually laid out a very compelling contrarian take that is long because I think that you're reflecting the consensus view and there might be something else that's going on here. Uh, and it was a very humbling moment for me, but it was also the moment where I realized um, that um, both the strengths and the weaknesses of geopolitics when it comes to investing. Because I think geopolitically, I was right, Turkey's been a mess in the last two years. But when you look at Turkish equities in those two years, they've actually outperformed because a lot of Turks are putting their money into the stock market because inflation has gone crazy. So um, it's an interesting way, I think, to find contrarian viewpoints too and understand sort of that that difference between what's happening and what people think is, is happening. And I, I think we're going to talk a lot more about practically how to use geopolitics and investing. But before we get into the nitty gritty, can you explain in your own words, what the heck is geopolitics? Because people assume it's international politics and, you know, what you would read in The Economist or, but it's not really that. It's something much more specific. Yeah, it's it's my least favorite question to get, but in some <laughs> ways it's the most important. Um, Tell us about uh, 20th century Swedish social philosophy, will you? Well, this is really more like therapy for me. I feel like I need to lay down on the couch now and talk about geopolitics because this is, uh, I just I just wrote a draft of the letter that's going out about announcing our me joining CI and I, I called it a tempestuous love affair with geopolitics and that's sometimes how it feels. Um, I so, so geopolitics itself is a 20, well, I, I should say a 19th century um, discipline for understanding relationships between states. And the first person to use the word geopolitics was a Swedish political scientist named Rudolf Chilen. Um, most of his stuff has not been translated into English. So anything I've been able to read of his has been either translated or it's been reviews of some of his work. Um, and he really, it, it, he had a much broader theory about how states behave. Um, but it all came down to sort of, it, it's the late 1800s. Think about how social Darwinism and all these biological concepts are becoming embedded in literally everything in the world that we're thinking about. Geopolitics was reflecting that in science itself. Um, and so for the next, and, and geopolitics, I think, actually became a bad word in the 1930s and 40s because Nazi Germany loved that shit. 
they were like, oh, great. This is a biological justification for the superiority of our race, and we are just elbowing out the weaker populations, and it's all biology, and it's all impulse and instinct, and there's none of this morality that people would normally associate with politics. Um, and, and that's an example of geopolitics going off the rail. But at its core, geopolitics is really just supposed to be a way of understanding how states are behaving, thinking of them less in terms of their ideology or their preferences, but what they're hardwired to love or what they're hardwired to fear, what things they're incapable of, even if they might want to do it, and also what things they have to do in order to secure themselves. Um, so that's like the, the very short definition. And where does the geography come in? Well, the geography comes in because talk about peninsulas a little bit peninsulas i mean <laughs> geography i think affects us way more than you might think um you know geography in some ways defines the language you speak the foods that you like the smells that you're used to who your parents are and when you kind of go down the list of things um a lot of that is based on your geography it also defines what your resource base is what you know what kinds of food can you actually grow do you have access to water how are you dependent on rivers and other things like that? Is it, do you live in a valley where everybody's kind of hanging out and doing the same thing? Or do you live in different valleys that are all separated by mountains? So everybody has their own little individualistic culture built into it. That's what the Balkans is like and why it's such a mess. Um, so it's really about thinking very clearly about the things that we take for granted. Because I think sometimes it's, it's human instinct to say that we make ourselves and we create our own identity. That's actually a very um, important thing I think today happening in society, the way that people want to carve their identities. Um, but geopolitics is a way of saying, hey, like most of your identity comes from where you came from and about the things that constrained you and the limited number of choices you had because of where you came from. And I mean, the other point, the other part of that word geopolitics is power. So it's where geopolitics and power and specifically the way that human communities organize themselves meet and how we actually organize our communities within given geographies. Um, now this can easily um, lead to geopolitical reductionism, which I define myself uh, very much against. You will find some geopolitical thinkers who will say, oh, well, there's a river here, so X is going to happen, or the demographic situation is this, so absolutely this is going to happen. It's much more multi multifaceted than that, and geopolitics has to pull in other disciplines, I think, in order to be operative, but its first beginning is looking at the geography of a particular political institution or state or what have you, and then defining outwards from there. And one thing I would point out for anyone who doesn't know Jacob personally, which I've had the pleasure of, of getting to know him in the last few years, just thinking about geopolitics as a very broad discipline, it's, it's really a humanist discipline. And that shows in your range of interests. Like, you're not just here looking at maps all day. You're interested in literature and history and basketball and food and culture. And and somehow the secret formula of what you do is all of that stuff kind of put together um, in a way that's hard to replicate. Yeah, I mean, it's really trying to see the forest for the trees, ultimately. I mean, I, like I said, I've always felt geopolitics was, was a little bit of a straitjacket as a word, and I never wanted to be reduced to that. When people ask me how to learn geopolitics, I normally say, like, go read some novels or go read some books or go understand the human condition or literally do anything. But if you only read geopolitical theory, you're actually not going to create any kind of insights for yourself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I remember very vividly at Stratfor when I was an intern and they were training me, um, one of the analysts who was training me, shout out um, Nate Hughes. Um, 
uh, I remember him telling me about his own training process. And I forget, I think it was about North Korea. The North Koreans had been testing some missiles or something like that when he was training. And he didn't know anything about missiles, but that was what happened that day. And they needed him to learn really, really fast and then learn enough so that he could talk about, okay, well, politically, what are they trying to indicate and what's going to happen next? So he didn't have to become a rocket scientist to get there, but he did need to develop some base fluency in the different missiles and the different rocket types. And he had to do that really, really fast. Um, There's a great Ernest Hemingway quote that I paste on the board of any analyst I've ever trained, uh, which talks about, he's talking about being a writer. He talks about how the the real skill of being a writer is just being able to learn things faster than other people and then communicate about them. I feel that way about geopolitics. It's not, I'm not an expert about anything in particular. I certainly have areas where I've spent more time thinking and reading and things like that. But my real skill is that you bring me something and A, I know where to look, B, I can learn it really, really fast, and then C, I can put it in this framework that allows you to start, okay, well, if I take out this variable, what happens? And if I add this variable, what happens? Um, I obviously always want to be right, but as I often say to clients, I'd, I'd rather be interesting. Like I do my job if you've imagined all the possible scenarios. Um, I don't do my job if something happens that we didn't think at all. Like oftentimes I'll be wrong about the actual outcome. It's why I don't make forecasts. I, I like to do scenarios instead. Um, but that's that's another way that I try and indulge in the, <laughs> I don't know, in the eclecticness of all the things that go into doing geopolitics. Um, I've I've had... One of the reasons I left academia was because I had professors who told me that my my inability to focus was actually a weakness. And it was in academia because you're supposed to bore down really, really hard into one thing. Um, whereas I'm really about trying to, as you said, understand why this thing happening in China is going to affect the price of shoes in Mexico. Um, the China expert's not going to understand that. And the Mexico expert's not going to understand that. It's the person who can jump in and out of those perspectives and bring insights back that is actually going to produce real insight. You know, it's funny. Now that you describe it that way, it really, it hits home for me that I think part of the reason why you're such a natural fit with the whole cognitive investments team is because we're of the same cloth. Um, I mean, we're generalists and the whole team, our genesis is in Off Wall Street, which is one of the great generalist firms and the founder, Mark Roberts, was a, had a master's degree in 19th century French literature. You know, and that was the ethos of, of our team and, and, and the firm you know, at, at Off Wall Street as well is go broadly, be creative, everything is connected. Um, and the way you describe academia as siloed and you need to focus on this very specific thing, the investment business works the same way. There's this kind of old, very kind of mid 20th century industrial uh, organization mindset, which says, okay, you people, you're going to go and focus on these two things. And you people are going to go over here and focus on these two things. And we're going to put you all together and we're going to know four things. But really, you, you don't because the sum of the parts is almost less than the, you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Um, it's funny though, like I... Um I also want to make sure, like, this is not a dig at specialization. Like, you need specialists. I remember when I, um, one of the first projects I did for Perch was for a client who was really interested in 5G um, and about telecommunications networks. And I didn't know crap about 5G and telecommunications networks. Um, And so I actually, I did. I I interviewed a couple experts um, and sort of said, hey, please, like, give me a remedial lesson here as quickly as you can. And I read a bunch of the things they recommended, and I learned just enough to be dangerous. 
In the end, you know, my client wasn't coming to me to understand the intricacies of how to set up a 5G network, but in order to explain to them why wireless networks were going to be a source of competition between China and Russia and the United States, I had to at least understand what the heck was going on and what went into creating a 5G network and where the different components were and how it could be hacked and all those other sorts of things. So I wouldn't claim to be a 5G expert now, but the one thing that I do have is I know enough to be dangerous and then I know where it sits politically. I know what the Chinese government's thinking about this. I know what the U.S. is thinking about this. I know what the constraints and the imperatives and the limitations are around it. And that allows you to give a differentiated point of view and to consider that avenue in a way that most most can't. Yeah. Although I think for what we do, for the most part, because it involves judgment and forecasting complex events that are involving many different humans together, for the most part, specialization can be dangerous. And you want to use specialists and specialist knowledge as a tool in your toolbox, but it can't be in the driver's seat. Yeah. The other danger of specialization is, so I already did my Hemingway quote, the other quote I always staple on on analyst trainees' desks are the the Socrates quote about, I'm paraphrasing, but it's that the real beginning of knowledge is the recognition that you don't know any. So in some ways, the hardest things that I do with geopolitics is really about understanding every time I approach a new subject, I don't actually know anything. So even if I have been an expert on something and I did a project a year ago and I was really proud of it and I thought I had a really good idea, if somebody comes to me the next year and asks the same question, I start from scratch. I don't assume that everything is the same as it was before because even little small things can change change things. And that's really hard for specialists because their identity gets wrapped up in knowing this one very specific thing better than anyone else. And the real challenge, I think, for generalists is to say, hey, I don't know like the answer to your question when you first ask it. I'll find out and I'll give you a perspective that is very interesting and differentiated. But in the moment, like the the first thing you have to say is, is to admit your ignorance, to admit that probably the thing that you think it is is actually wrong. It's probably thing that is being programmed into your head subconsciously or via your own biases or the media or, or things like that. So um, it took me a long time actually to get comfortable with saying, I don't know. Like in, in some of the intellectual environments I was in, both in grad school and in other geopolitical firms, um, you were only as good as your most recent idea. You wanted to be the person that you know always seemed to project confidence. And that's why in intelligence and analysis in general, um, you get mistakes because the people who get promoted up the chain are the ones who just say, yes, I know it. Even if they haven't actually sat down and said, oh, I don't know, like, give me a week to figure out exactly what's going on here and we can we can put some interesting pieces together. Well, George Soros famously said in The Alchemy of Finance that he was starting, as you described, with no knowledge about anything. And he had, as he put it, 48 hours to find out everything he could about a certain subject. And he called it going for the jugular. And that's sort of the process that you described where you have to start from a place of ignorance. But it, it, the process of, of learning gives you an advantage. Like look at the financial crisis, for example. And, and we see this in our business all the time, the, the benefit of outsider knowledge. But who saw the financial crisis coming? Who saw the subprime uh, underwriting problems it wasn't the bank analysts. It wasn't the Wall Street guys whose job was to focus on three banks and know everything about them. No, it was the outsiders who were not bank specialists who came in, noticed something unusual because they didn't assume everything and they were able to see, hey, that's strange. That doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, the, the geopolitics equivalent of what you're talking about is the end of the Cold War, which was all the Soviet experts in the CIA. None of them realized that the Soviet Union was about to collapse because they weren't seeing it from the outside. They were just thinking of the Soviet Union, all these very, you know, they knew all these things about the Soviet Union, except the fact that the system was untenable and that it was collapsing in on itself because they couldn't get that perspective. Um, well, that was a good windup into into how we're going to use geopolitics into investing. Uh, you asked, what is geopolitics? What else do we need to tell the listeners about geopolitics before we get into how to actually um, use what we're talking about to create investment returns or to give you sort of a safer investment profile in this world? Well, I think an important piece of background to go into is why now? Why are we having this conversation in 2022 and not 2002? Um, what happened to geopolitics? Why did it become less important? Why are there not 50 geopolitical analysts running all over the place? There aren't very many. Well, th there are a bunch of self-appointed ones now. Uh, even when I started, uh, I sort of started this journey in 2009, 2010, there weren't a lot of people. There was George, who I worked for, George Friedman. Uh, Ian Bremmer was obviously the gold standard. Um, Peter Zion was with Stratfor. I mean, a lot of these people were all kind of in one area and they've all branched out on their own. Uh, but to your point, it's because there was a period there where competition between states wasn't the way that the world was really operating. When the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the United States became the most powerful country in the world, economically, financially, politically, militarily. There was really no challenger. And because there was no challenger, um, the United States basically got to make the world in its own image. Now, it wasn't perfect. If you go back, even in the in the heady days of the 1990s, there were blips that things were wrong. I mean, think about what happened in Somalia. Think about the Balkan Wars. I mean, you, there were little sort of breadcrumbs. But it seemed like the general trajectory was towards liberal democracy and globalization and um, you know capitalism uh, sort of running the show. Uh, the best example of this was China. Everybody thought that China was going to amass more wealth and then was going to become more democratic or, or more peaceful over time. I was just writing um, a piece for some Canadian grain farmers and talking about how um, when Tiananmen happened, um, the Tiananmen Square massacre where the Chinese came in and, and crushed these student protests, um, you, you probably remember this, this image of the tank with the, lowly, the, the lonely man just standing in front of it. Um, if you go back and look at what the U.S. did then, it was remarkably soft. George H.W. Bush actually writes a personal letter to Deng Xiaoping, who's the leader of China at the time, and calls him my dear friend and talks about how I had to do some things in terms of sanctions, but I held back the worst of it because I really believe in the U.S.-China relationship. And here's why we disagree with what you did, but I don't want to interfere in your politics. And I just want you to figure out a way to make this what is best for China. Today, I mean, even like, let's forget about Donald Trump and, and the trade war and all that stuff. I mean, Joe Biden calls Xi Jinping a thug, like literally just sort of offhand, like, oh, this guy's terrible and he's evil incarnate. And you can sort of see the, the switch that's happened in the last 30 years from the United States thinking, oh, I can reason with China. I can give China incentives. The, the arc of history is moving in the direction that I want versus now where everything is seized up and everything is about fear and competition and you're bad and I'm good. And if you don't do what I say, it's going to be tariffs and pain and destruction and all these other things. I think it's it sort of bookends you know, so, sort of how far we, we've come from that initial moment of optimism. And do you think, and, and this is not a question that I've asked you before, so maybe you don't have an off-the-cuff answer, but I'm curious, why, because... Historically, you see these cycles 
where you have globalization cycles, where there's some international standard that draws countries in like a tractor beam, and they start behaving in similar ways and directing policy in similar directions, whether it be the Washington Consensus or 100 years ago, the gold standard led by the UK, or even 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire, where barbarian tribes start wearing togas and acting in Roman ways and you know following Roman laws and that sort of thing. So you see these cycles happen again and again. Why do they turn? And why do you think that this cycle has turned? What was it about the Washington Consensus that stopped drawing them like they used to? Was it the realization that you weren't going to achieve the kind of wealth creation in that system that originally maybe was thought? Was it some other issue? Was it more about the United States becoming less engaged? What do you think? Well, first of all, I, I always have an off-the-cuff answer. I can't promise it's going to be very good, but I always have one. That's why it's off-the-cuff. Um, I think the point of your question, though, is to point out how rare this is for this to actually happen. I mean, the Roman Empire was a great example. Uh, the British Empire was another example. Um, usually, these situations happen. So, I mean, the British Empire is a good example. The British sort of become that dominant global power because France falls on its face. That was what Napoleon was trying to do. He overreaches. And when France collapses because everybody gangs up against them and they collapse, then Britain is kind of the last man standing. And because geography, they're away from the European continent, they get all the gains of the Industrial Revolution without having to worry about the Germans invading or pushing all the way to Moscow. They can just be on the island and have all their coal and innovate and use their navy to dominate. Um, but again, those, are, those, those periods in history are relatively rare. Things like that have to happen. Your enemies have to collapse. You have to have some kind of advantage, whether it's technological or geographic or something like that for one power, and it's never sustainable. I mean, the British Empire, the sun never sets in the British Empire. It's going to rule for a long time. It was basically 100 years between when the British Empire really, you know, France fell and they, they take over India. It was roughly 100 years. Then it's World War I and we're already off to the next thing. Uh, the Romans lasted a long time. That probably has more to do with technology than anything else. They just couldn't. Um, there weren't any challengers for a long time, but eventually um, within itself, uh, the seeds of decadence were planting. I think that's the other thing. Um, power has a way of, and wealth have a way of making you soft and lazy. Um, you amass all of this power and then you just sort of take things for granted. And I think that's the really dangerous place about where the US is. My argument about um, living in a multipolar world has much more to do with how China is rising as a power and Russia's declining as a power. I don't think the United States actually I'm not sure what trajectory it's on. I can make the case for it rising or for it falling. But the thing that's dangerous for the United States is that it's been top dog for a while now. And a generation has grown up just sort of being accustomed to being the top dog. So we're accustomed to having all these things. We don't have to sacrifice. We don't think of all the things we have to do as a collective and the compromises we have to make in order to push things forward. Um, so I wouldn't even call it cycles. I think that there are moments in time where the stars align and you can have a period where there is one dominant power, but for most of human history, it's usually there's powers that are competing and fighting against each other, and you have all these in-between powers that are also balancing and looking to protect themselves as well. The United States globalization moment, you had the Soviet Union collapse, you had the United States with incredibly favorable geography, um, and it just sort of enjoyed this moment in the sun where it had no challengers. And now those challengers have risen, those challengers have taken advantage of that global world that they took care of, and now they want a piece of the the pie as well. So I, I think in every sort of system where you get that 
that that lone superpower, the seeds of its demise are already there. Nothing is permanent. You're not going to get to a place where, well, maybe one day we will, and and the ver and the vision of like Star Trek universe will be real. But um, it's it it doesn't look like it is anytime soon. So the image of a cycle is not really accurate. It's more that you tend to have these occasional aberrations from the norm, and the norm is multipolarity. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, I I haven't quite said it that way yet, but I'm going to steal it now that you said it. I uh, I have a reflexive um, condescension towards, um, you, you know who Neil Howe is and, and the fourth turning or that book about the generations and the demography. I, I hate cyclical arguments. I mean, there is a time and place for cyclical arguments. I think it's probably much more in markets um, than it is in geopolitics. But, um, and this is why I say about humility, I get very, very skittish about saying, oh, like the the, the world operates on a cycle where this rises and this, that, that's a little too Hegelian and a little too um, formulaic for me. I think usually it's a lot more contingencies and a lot more, um, yeah, it's, it's usually not based on cycles. And and just think of it. Like, I mean, the idea of geopolitics in and of itself is that different geographies divide us, that we're not all the same. And so that we're all trying to get resources for ourselves. Like nowhere in the animal kingdom is there one like animal that becomes the most powerful of all of, all of its species and then just dominates everything. It's always rival tribes or you, you go in your own herd or, or things like that. It's just, it's not natural to have one thing dominate everything. Everybody wants as much independence as they can. Well, speaking of aberrations, I can speak to the investment background because I can tell you in my career, macro and geopolitics and big picture uh, stuff like that was never ever in the foremost and my generation of investment uh, analysts and, and portfolio managers you know i think you write in the white paper that we're releasing that geopolitical muscles have atrophied well it's the same thing with investment because a whole generation of people have grown up just focusing on the companies and there's this very Warren Buffett um, sort of ethos where you don't have to worry about what's going on in the world. America is number one. I'm going to sit in my office. I'm going to read company annual reports all day long, and I don't have to worry about that stuff. And now I think that's going out the window, obviously, because you know it doesn't matter which company you picked when the oil price triples and you know a whole sector gets walloped um, so that's really interesting because it really it makes you think about how skills develop over time and it's going to be a big gap because i don't know anyone who studies geopolitics or really knows these issues like you do and you fell into this field completely by random you are going to be a, a a monk or well, a monk <laughs> I was going to be a rabbi and then a monk and then a, well, I really wanted to be a basketball player, but uh, it just wasn't in the cards for me. You got close though. <laughs> Did I? I don't think I got that close. You're pretty famous on the playground, Larry, from what I hear. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, but the, I mean, the other, the other thing I think you should, you should um, talk about or that we should talk about is, because, um, because this was really eye-opening for me, which is, um, you know, in the last 30 years, if you were just picking in terms of countries, the best decision you could have made was just park your money in a U.S. index and just let it grow. I mean, there were a couple other, you know, indices that did well over that time period, like the German DAX, I think has done really well over the last 30 years. The yen, I think is basically stagnant over 30 years or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly. It's something like that. Um, 
But you don't think that's the case going forward. You think that this return to multipolarity is also going to reflect in terms of the different performance of different countries. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. You didn't do yourself any favors by being in anything international <clears throat> for the last 30 years on average. Um, there was a brief period in the early 2000s when the Chinese kind of fixed asset investment model was pumping on all cylinders uh, when emerging markets were very hot. That lasted a hot minute and then it was over. Um, but if you look on a 20 or 30 year basis, the United States has blown away every other international market, never mind Japan. I mean, Japan has been mired in uh, stagnation since the Heisei bubble burst in 1989. So it was a very easy decision to make. You didn't really need to know much about what was going on outside of US shores. Um, and I, I think very clearly that is changing. And, and a lot of people recognize that. Um, there's sort of an intuitive understanding that what goes up can't continue going up forever. And there's a lot of weight hanging on the US now whether you look at the profit margins of US companies. I mean, that's the biggest one. If you were to map the profit margins of the US corporate sector, they bottomed in 1982 uh, when inflation peaked and when the market bottomed for a generation. And from 1982 until 2015, 16, really, they were with some cyclical variations, just going up, 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 up. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of them are about outsourcing and international trade and supply chains becoming thinner and thinner and more just in time and more just in time, inventory shrinking, all of that. And now that's, that's done. Uh, profit margins, I think, peaked in 2016. And we had a brief spike under COVID because the government was giving everyone money for free. Um, but already it's starting to roll over. And that's probably it for a generation. So if you think profit margins are going to go back to some long-term mean, which generally they do, then the U.S. is going to have this massive wind in its face for a very long time. Um, and on top of that, just valuations are, uh, are very extended in the U.S. more generally, which is something that people argue about, and we won't talk about it here. Um, but all of that reflects this notion of U.S. dominance and the easy... Uh, unipolarity that persisted for so long. And that's, you don't need a geopolitical expert to tell you that's done. No, no, no. You, you absolutely need a geopolitical expert to tell you that these things are, yeah, all these things. Well, you need an expert to tell you what to do next, <laughs> but you don't need an expert to tell you that there's yeah, trouble. <laughs> I think also embedded in what you're saying though is is also this division between active and passive. Because I don't think you're saying that the U.S. market just in general across the board is going to do badly. There's probably going to be pockets within the U.S. that actually do really well in this particular environment. There will be some sectors, whether, I mean, maybe it's energy long-term, maybe it's, um, I mean, anything to do with sort of national security, I think, all that stuff, semiconductors, all these things that are critical that are going to become sources of geopolitics. You're gonna, I think you're going to see a lot of government stimulus from different governments. So, you may want to be, if you can, in the semiconductor industry in Japan and China and the U.S. because they're all going to be pumping money at those things. So it's not, it's not just about picking the countries. It's then also about having enough of a, an expertise to say, okay, like we have these country bets, but we also know we want this sector in this country, and we want we don't want this sector in this country because this one is kind of out of its prime. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. 
In many ways, it's the death knell of passive investing, I think. And technology plays a big part. And this is really a story about globalization, too, because if you look at the U.S. S&P 500 index, for example, it's dominated by five or six huge information technology companies. And I use that term very specifically because technology is not just information tech. Those are digital computing companies in various forms. And we're, you know, in the sixth or seventh inning of a technological revolution, which is the rollout of digital computing. And uh, I always like to, uh, to, to, I always talk about Carlotta Perez, but I really love her book and the way that she describes technological revolutions and what they really mean. And one of the points she makes is that with each one, each general purpose technology that overtakes the world has created a broader and broader geographic network. And the ultimate hypothesis of that is digital technology because you, it literally has global standards, global networks, huge dominant companies that can set standards like Microsoft and just spread all over the world. And that was pretty much what we experienced for the last 30 years. You saw tech giants come out, establish network effects in various segments of the market, aggregate all the supply on one side, and, and print money. And that is a very easy investment thesis. And now, you know, as you've written about many times recently, that's all getting topsy-turvy because those artificial barriers are coming up. You can't just have, you're not going to have Google in China. You're not going to have Microsoft in China, for example. And this balkanization of the tech world is, uh, is, is throwing a monkey wrench into what should be this natural progression. Um, so that's a huge disruption. Um, on top of kind of the technology thing, uh, there's a chart that I really like that we put in the, in the, in the uh, white paper where we look at just cyclically how different countries and by association different industries across the world are moving together or not. And it's really fascinating because if you look at, say, the progression of interest rates in the U.S., and the EU and China and put them on a map against each other, it's like a synchronized wave, you know, cycle after cycle throughout the 1990s and all the way heading into the 2008 crisis. And then after 2012, it's like a plate of spaghetti. All of the lines start going in different directions. And that's even more so today. I mean, as we talk today, the United States is heading into a recession. China's heading out of a recession and Europe is sort of somewhere in between. And that's really weird. And it really impacts where should you be investing and which sectors within each of those economies and everything's doing its own thing. Um, so there's all these different areas of volatility and change that just didn't exist before. Yeah. And I just, I just want to underscore what you said about technology, because I think that point's really, um, really gets lost because I mean, the internet and technology in particular, I mean, has done amazing things over the past 30 years, especially done in the service of globalization. But these governments have turned against it. And it's not an ephemeral thing. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is this is now my geopolitical bias showing, but I think the state is going to win if the state decides that it wants to do something or that technology may not pass certain borders or may not enter certain borders. They'll figure it out. Um, I, I think I said in the paper that you know China's great firewall of it where, where where they were preventing information from being accessed by Chinese um, citizens 
Uh, everybody thought they were the outlier. Oh, this is this weird thing that China is not going. They're going to restrict things on the on the global internet. But now everybody's doing it. Russia's doing it. Turkey's doing it. You look at all these different countries, and they're using the tools of technology for their own political purposes. Um, I think we think of technology as apolitical, but it's actually super political. I mean, just think about all the parts that go into your iPhone, and where are they sourced from, and how do you get them in such a way that it only costs you a couple hundred bucks? You need, you know. Open sea lane so that you can go get it, get the cobalt or wherever it is in sub-Saharan Africa. You need free trade so that's not exorbitant to get it. You need to be okay with a global system where some people are getting paid, you know, no wages at all, or even have child labor to get the resource out of the ground and get it to you because you're you're the top dog and everybody else kind of has to revolve around you in the global economy. So even sort of in 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 our iPhones is this sort of the age of globalization. And it's gonna be a lot harder. A lot of these countries are gonna they're not going to care so much about efficiency if they can't protect what they've already owned. I mean, China's learned that the hard way in the in the trade war. Huawei went from being a globally dominant company in 5G to just serving the Chinese market. The Chinese market's big enough so that Huawei will be fine. Um, but the United States basically, the United States, the beacon of capitalism, the leader of the Washington consensus said, not to a country, but said to a company, hey, you're not. We're not going to allow you to do this because we think there's a security threat from your government. You can't imagine that even 20 years ago, probably. But I think that brings up uh, a really important point because when we talk about historically how this has played out in the past, the obvious and most recent corollary is the 1930s, which a lot of people have pointed out, I think, where you have a global system that's breaking down, countries start acting in, you know, uh, uh, more self-focused ways, barriers go up, tariffs go up, all of, you know, all the things that, that we know. And yet the difference today, which I think is really critical and why we're almost in a sweet spot for what we do is you've had enough time for the, the networks to build that a lot of that is not going away. Even though you may get technical barriers coming up and the United States is not gonna let Huawei uh, operate networks in this country or in our allies and, and those sorts of issues. We can go today and still buy Chinese stocks. We can go to almost for any, now. <laughs> for now, for now. But it's not like, um, you know, if you go to the 1920s, the emblem of the 1920s sort of international investor was John Maynard Keynes uh, speculating on currencies and shorting the franc and buying up companies in Germany and the United States. And then that went away. It got shut down. Uh, Germany shut down. Uh, uh, all of the international flows essentially got shut down. Countries moved to import substituting industrialization policies. The capital accounts were closed you're done. If you're in our business, you don't have much to choose from. You know, you can buy railroad stocks and treasury bonds. Um, that's not the case today. Uh, and even if you do get at the margin of Russia, where all of a sudden it's kaput, that's going to be, I think, very much an outlier. And right now there's something like 60 countries that you can invest in. Even through ETFs, you don't even have to set up direct access in those countries. With the proviso that history can sometimes obscure the future, like I absolutely 
I'm a proponent of learning history and, and history is a good way of understanding where you're going, but sometimes history can give you patterns and you expect history to repeat itself. And usually things don't happen the same way twice. Um, but I would say that the, the 1930s is an example of where we might be headed in the next 20 or 30 years, but I don't think we're there yet. I think the moment we're at right now is more like the 1890s, um, because you're right in the 1930s, things shut down and the world got very rigid, very quickly. What happened in the 1890s was even as you had these rising powers and falling powers that were all eyeing each other, they still kept trading with each other. To your point, the world had become so globalized and everybody had gotten so used to it that there was a certain inertia. So even though the British uh, and the Germans, it was very clear they were on a collision course, trade actually increased. I, I forget exactly by how much, but like by multiple factors between 1890 right up until 1914. There was even this idea that the world was so globalized that nobody was ever gonna go to war again um, because the world was that globalized. I think it's also an important era because that was also the time of a major industrial technological revolution. And we're kind of, as you said, going through one of those now. It, you even get a stupid Russia invasion in the 1890s of Japan, where you know, Russia goes after Japan, Japan completely destroys uh, the Russians. They get a revolution sort of down the, it seems like Putin's even giving us like that exact thing, except it's Ukraine and Europe will be the, the power that rises. So I think the 1930s is the worst case scenario for if we stay on the current trajectory. And I would say we're on that trajectory right now. I do think there's time to avert it. Um, th there is time to maybe moderate it or to have some consensus. It's probably not going to be the Washington consensus, but you could imagine a world in which some of these powers would be able to cooperate with each other again. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is COVID should have been that, and it wasn't. It was the exact opposite. Instead of the world joining together to stop a virus that doesn't care you know, where we're from or what our national security imperatives are, we actually use the virus against the Chinese and the Chinese, you, you know, they got the personal medical equipment for themselves and you had hoarding and all these other things. It was actually a really, a really negative scenario and suggests, I think that we're on that, that trajectory that you laid out. Well, should we talk about what kind of countries we think are best positioned for this brave new world? Yeah. Let's, uh, why don't we do that and then close out? Cause it's, we're already at a the 46 minute mark. Oh, wow. Um, do you want to give some broad ideas about different regions and zones that you think are positively or negatively impacted by everything happening? Sure. So I um, I think the two regions that I'm most optimistic about, the first is Latin America. Um, and Latin America's underperformed for a long time. But the last time Latin America really looked like it was going to be part of or, or really outperform from an investment perspective was the early 1900s. Argentina actually had a similar um, level of wealth as France did before World War I um, and was considered sort of a sure bet. You can't imagine that now because the Argentinians keep you know, defaulting all the time and you know, they wouldn't know what sound monetary policy was if it came and introduced itself to them. Um, but in general, the reason I'm, I'm optimistic about Latin America is really geographic. They're going to be located very, very far away from a lot of the upheaval that is coming in a world of geopolitical competition. From a resource perspective, they have some issues, especially in terms of water in some countries and how climate change is going to affect a country like Brazil. But by and large, there are very few other regions um, that are as blessed with resources as Latin America is. So it's really a question of they have the ability, if they can reform their politics, to take advantage of this global situation. Um, but it's not like some other regions of the world where, for instance, Central Asia, Central Asia is just screwed. It doesn't matter what happens. They're running out of water. They can't grow enough food. You're going to see migration flows. They're between China and India 
um, and Iran and Russia. I mean, they're just going to get sort of sandwiched between all these powers and it's, it doesn't matter what they do politically. It's going to be very difficult. Whereas Latin America, they could screw up royally politically and still do really well. Um, the second one, and, and I think this is more contrarian these days, is I, I like the European Union and I like Europe going forward. And as I usually tell audiences when I speak to them now, that's probably the biggest shift in my thinking in the last five to seven years. If you Google my name and find old articles of me from Stratfor or Geopolitical Futures, um, you'll find very lovely, elegant prose about why the European Union is going to collapse and it can never come together and it's not going to work. Uh, and I've really done a 180 on that. I think all those things that were preventing the European Union from realizing its potential, they're all still there. I'm not saying that something has changed internally in the EU. It's what's changed externally. I think those threats are serious enough now that European leaders are not faced with, well, I either do this or Brussels is going to tell me what to do. Now it's, I either do this or is Russia going to invade me next? Or is my country just going to become a proxy for China? Or, you know, is a migration crisis from sub-Saharan Africa going to completely overwhelm my borders and I'll have nothing to do with it? I think the fact that those external issues now outweigh the internal issues tells me that the European Union really has to join or die in the Ben Franklin sense of the term. And I think they'll join. I don't think um, a block that is that wealthy and that coherent is going to choose um, death. So I like I like the European Union and, and Latin America. What about you? Or do you want to take the opposite and say where you're pessimistic on? No, I mean, the, that's where our investments are concentrated. So I wouldn't take the, uh, the opposite view of that for sure. I guess w w the way I think about it more generally, because each of these countries we have to evaluate every month going forward. And I'm reluctant to say, oh, 20 years from now, Brazil is where you want to be because something could change and our analysis could change. But I think the way that I think about it, at least, is there's been three true growth miracles in the, in the history of the world since the Industrial Revolution, really, in the 20th century, at least, like true miracles. There was Japan, there was Korea, and there was China. And all three of those countries grew and absolutely exploded during an environment where they were surrounded by foes, where they were fearful of being left behind, and where they had the agency to pursue internal development without being influenced too much, even though J Japan was a close ally of the United States, the United States allowed them to pursue their own inward development model that was very not laissez-faire, to say the least. And I think that is the silver lining of the crumbling of kind of the Washington consensus is you have the scope for other countries to pursue similar policies. Some will be successful, some will be unsuccessful. But I think there's the potential for miracles, growth miracles in the way that we haven't seen uh, in the last 30, 40 years. So I personally am looking for countries that are taking a purposeful approach to kind of building out their own national capabilities, who are building out and climbing up the knowledge curve to the technological frontier. So I look at places like Turkey, which we talked about, which has a lot of problems, but at the same time, a lot of very interesting developments. And I think a lot of the things that people see as a negative, oh, they're turning away from the United States, they're, they're an ideological enemy, 
you know, they're doing these policies that we think are ridiculous. In many ways, I think they're, they have a secret uh, silver lining to them in the sense that they're gaining agency. They're de-dollarizing their economy. They're uh, trying to build out their own manufacturing uh, base and take supply chains away from other areas and dominate their region. Um, those are the sorts of stories that I would be looking for, at least as 20-year growth opportunities. And when you look at the gap, this is the most optimistic part of the whole thing, I think. When you look at the gap between the wealth of nations and how it's widened, I mean, everyone talks about how the you know, global wealth has increased, but really the gap between the poorest nations and the richest ones has not closed at all in the last 20, 30 years, which is shameful and incredible. When you just think the difference between these guys and these guys is these guys know how to do stuff and these people don't. Literally, like that's what technology is, knowing how to do stuff. So when you think about where we are with communications, with how labor markets are slowly starting to bleed across borders, which is an investment that we're looking at at this Africa opportunity, uh, just for example, I'm very optimistic that you're going to see some of those gaps close and you could see them close very quickly. And you want to be involved because that's where the wealth creation, it's going to happen in the United States. I'm optimistic about the United States. It's going to happen in Europe. But when you think of the truly explosive catch-up kind of growth, that's what I would be looking for as, as far as directing our team. Well, and you're reminding me of um, Marco Papich, who was on this podcast just a couple weeks ago. Um, he, he put this in a really good way, I, I thought, which, and, and your example about Japan and Korea and China made me think of this because you're right, Japan developed very differently than, say, the United States would, but Japan, Korea, and China all developed because the United States wants them to. The United States wanted Japan as a counterweight. The United States intervenes in the Korean War and helps Korea develop. Even China, the whole thing about China is Nixon restores relations with China and there's this sort of bilateral agreement where, hey, we don't like the Soviet Union, we're gonna balance together and economically, we're gonna basically outdo the Soviet Union in that work. That's exactly what happened. Um, that's a, a long-winded way of saying, if you went long the countries that the US wanted to prop up, in the Cold War, or in the globalization era, you did well because the United States was the dominant power. It won the Cold War, and then you sort of got another multiplier on your effect after after the Soviet Union collapses. That's probably not going to be the place anymore um, that you want to be. You probably want to be in the countries that say, fuck you, America. I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. And to your point, that requires you to be even more skilled in terms of how to invest, because it's going to be harder for a U.S. investor to get into some of these countries, because you're going to have those geopolitical tensions. It might not be as easy to go get exposure to the different stocks or the different companies that you want, because companies, or excuse me, because countries are going to be trying to protect those investments from foreign capital and preventing them from being influenced that way. So, I think you're exactly right. Some of the some of what we're looking for here is looking for those countries that are standing up and saying. No, we don't want to do it. We want our own consensus. We want to do things our own way. And those are places that are actually opportunities, even if the mindset of an American investor towards those countries is probably going to be, oh, well, they don't like America, or this is a challenge, or this makes me uncomfortable. I just want to be in the in the places where we're allies. Like That might not work anymore unless you sort of think the United States is going to win this multipolar contest at some point in the next 20 or 30 years, which I don't. It's the turkey dilemma. 
-hmm. And in addition to the access, the physical access issues, I think there's a mentality issue, which we talked about, this notion of being able to understand uh, from the point of view of a foreign people, what are their constraints? What are their fears? What is their point of view on the world? And be able to empathize with that is really important. And that's hard to do. And most investors don't think like that, unfortunately, because unless you've made a conscious effort to get your head out of it, you know, everyone reads The Economist magazine every week and the economy, oh, these guys are doing the bad thing. Shame on you. You're, you know, and, and these guys are doing the good thing. We're going to pat them on the back. And that's how you're trained to think. So like Turkey, for example, is doing things that most quote unquote right thinking investors would, their heads would explode. And uh, that's difficult to get out of that mindset unless you've really made a deliberate, created a deliberate structure where you can do so. I think another really good example of this is, um, you know, I didn't think Russia was going to invade Ukraine. And we were looking at Russian equities for a little while there. And we, we had a position in Russian equities before the war. And in some ways, the thing I'm most proud of so far in working with you um, is not that we got that wrong. We did get that wrong. But we also realized we got it wrong soon enough to get out. So this goes back to the passive active and what you said about the 20 year time horizon. Like Russia was actually, it's that, it fits that model to a T it's foreign, it's doing its own thing. It's contravening, you know, norms and, and uh, pursuing its own aggressive foreign policies. I think Russia made a tremendous mistake in what it did in Ukraine. Um, and that was when we took the position off before the markets really tanked and you couldn't get your money out. Um, but it's about being able to identify those opportunities, gaining exposure, but then also watching closely enough so that if something does happen that you didn't expect, or if some other contingency happens that challenges the thesis, you can get out first. So you're first in, but you're also first out when something goes wrong. I think that's also a really important part of what we're talking about. Because it's not just, like a lot of times I work with clients, uh, or when I worked with clients, they would want me to sort of you know, give them the roadmap for the next 10 years. And I would always tell them, okay, here's the roadmap as of today. But if you don't have somebody on your team rechecking the roadmap every week or so, like, like this isn't going to be good for that long. I'm not that good. If I was, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd have my own island in the South Pacific and nobody and China would be courting me with MOUs on cooperation <laughs> for my small island. The potential upside is huge, but you can't just roll into Turkey and put it on autopilot yeah. for 10 years and say, okay, my job here is done. No, seriously. I mean, like, because we're, we're long Turkey right now, but if Erdogan keeps going with inflation, I mean, we may have to say, hey, we're a little early here. We might want to pause and, and let Turkey digest some of what's been going on, even though we have a, a nice a nice little gain, I think, already. And I, I think that's a nice way to, to round it up because it sort of encapsulates the culture. And let me, let me toot our own horn a little bit. But the culture that I have tried to create at this firm, and I hope that everyone would agree that this is what it is, which is intellectual agility uh, generalism, humanism, the willingness to identify when things change and quickly change your mind, and just being more nimble and, and seeing the little cracks where others aren't paying attention or where there's biases against something that could represent an extraordinary opportunity. Um, I think, and that's why I started this firm, that that sort of intellectual approach is going to be rewarded in spades in this environment. And we will see, but uh, it seems to be going well so far. And if anyone wants to uh, speak with us more about how 
they can join us on this journey, they're welcome to reach out to us. Yeah. And I think it's also a good way of, of closing by saying that's why we're called cognitive dissidents. <laughs> that's like, right. We're out here because we're we're trying to, to, to go against the grain. So, all right. That was Rob. I'm Jacob from Cambridge. Hopefully that all recorded. Um, well, it definitely recorded. Hopefully it recorded in the quality that we're used to. Um, I'm a geopolitics guy. I'm not a audio guy. And I had to set up these mics myself. So if you're listening to this and it sounds good, <laughs> I did well. Um, but anyway, Rob, the, thanks. The white paper, if you oh, want to. Yes, yes. Uh, please, if you want, it'll be on our website, cognitive.investments, if you want to check out the white paper. Um, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good read. And if you just want more information about the about the firm, cognitive.investments is your is where to go. And if you want to write to us directly, whether it's you have thoughts about the podcast or you have thoughts about investments or um, you can really email me for any reason that you want. I'm Jacob at cognitive.investments. Rob is Rob at cognitive.investments. Um, somebody will definitely get back to you if you write to us. So other than that, anything I missed? I don't think so. All right. We'll see you out there, y'all. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.